0: as a nurse i studied individual health then i became a student of organizational health that led me to management and leadership all with the mind to get stuff done done for people with people by people patients caregivers and direct care clinicians My role changed at each step. My bag of tools grew. I learned to be a good leader, coach, and mentor. Sometimes great. Sometimes I reached my goal when I had one. My success measure, BAT 500. Success half the time. Well, now I'm old, nearing the end of my career, and I'm on a national board the Board of Governors of PCORI, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. As a lifelong learner and master networker, I started looking for other people identifying as patient caregivers stakeholders on national boards. I found our guest Adam Thompson recently. He's on the board of the National Quality Forum, NQF. I'm a member of NQF and serve on several committees and panels. You might remember that Matt Pickering, a director at NQF, appeared on Health Hats, the podcast, a few months ago. NQF's mission? To be the trusted voice driving measurable health improvements. Its vision? Every person experiences high-value care and optimal health outcomes. Of course, there's way more to it than that. So let's meet Adam and learn more (laughs) welcome to health hats the podcast i'm danny van lewin a two-legged cisgender old white man of privilege who knows a little about a lot of health care and a lot about very little we will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of healthcare. Let's make some sense of all of this. Good morning. How are you?
1: I'm so glad it's Friday. This was the finals week for graduate school. And the first half of our thesis was due. It's all the sort of widgets and planning pieces, which is just you change one thing in a document and then there's seven other documents you got to go change it in. So it's just like, oh my God, all week.
0: And what is your role and where are you in this process?
1: So I am just about to finish up with my master's in public health. So I've been Started just before the pandemic, it was not the worst time to decide right. to get a master's degree. I will say that.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's um, I, I got my uh, MPH at the University of Minnesota, and it was uh, like one of the first distance learning programs. Oh, and, and so the whole philosophy was that you had to be in the industry and use your work as your laboratory.
1: Yep. Ours was very similar, actually.
0: And it was just a great education.
1: Have you ever met or come across in any of your work, Dr. David Nash?
0: It's a familiar name, but I can't say how.
1: Yeah. He's one of the like crown princes of population health management. He does a lot of work there. He founded a school of population health out of the Jefferson health enterprise in Philadelphia. Yeah. So that's where I ended up going to school because I thought, "Oh, population health, that's cool. And it was run by the lead as a qualitative researcher. So that made it even
0: cooler. <laughs> right. Okay. What I wanted to chew on with you is this business of being a patient caregiver activist And being on a national board. So I'm on the Board of Governors of PCORI, Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. And you're on the board of...
1: The National Quality Forum.
0: The National Quality Forum. First of all, it's a hoot to to have that seat and to be in a leadership role is really different than being an activist not that one doesn't inform the but it's a different role at least for me i feel like my responsibility is to the whole organization and so while i feel like i've had to hone my listening skills throughout my career because I would have to say that it is not my strongest muscle. I feel like it's even, it's on steroids. The making all the connections, listening to what other board members who, I'm so fortunate that the board of PCORI is brilliant, just brilliant and inspiring and I have so much to learn, and I love learning, Um, but it means shut mouth, open ears. Anyway, tell me a little bit about your experience. I
1: absolutely agree about coming from the community of people with HIV. We are very rooted in our agitation, our activism, and our advocacy. And as a community, pretty adept at understanding where you deploy what method, what are you doing in this environment? And In our community, we've thought about it uh, in a framework where agitation is when someone is disagreeing with you, there's not a problem, they don't want to do nothing about it. Activism, people are aware there's a problem, they're just not motivated to do something. And advocacy is, we've all agreed that there's a problem, and we want to collectively do something about it. As I've worked through my community before joining what I would call like the culture of quality right here in the United States, I Learned how to recognize when a system is listening, how to hear, right, when people are hearing you. And I think as a result, I feel a great responsibility. Uh, I feel like my business is the human condition, that at its core, what I try to do is see experience, understand it, find a way to translate it, and then an appropriate frame for the environment in the context uh, that we're trying to inform with that experience. And so for me, I, I agree with you, right? It's like, I had to listen a lot. When I first started doing quality measurement work, I remember the summer was learning statistics. And I was like, oh my goodness. I called physicians and even they were like, Adam, I don't do this. You got to go talk to somebody else. And I learned, I definitely listened. And I think there's there's any wisdom that I've gained from it, it's that I'm not sitting at those tables at, at NQF because I'm an accomplished clinician. I'm not sitting there because I have, developed a groundbreaking measure that is now solving all of our disparities. I think that I'm there because I have found a way to be a conduit for my community's experience and understanding and how to bring that back to the community. I think what I've learned is that I look for opportunities in my experience, both sitting on various committees uh, and expert panels, but also as a board member. To find the moments where that experience, that narrative, those collective sort of like voices of the people that come from the spaces and places that I walk in and, and the people that I hang out with walk in and try to find the moment when it's most going to inform that opportunity. I'll be the first to say, I don't always have something to say about everything, but I think, and I would hope that my colleagues might you know, agree with me that when I do say something I think it's pretty meaningful because it's that as you were saying, I've listened, I've learned like what they value and how they speak about things. And so as a board member, I feel an incredible responsibility as the framer of experience. And really, I think then you have the responsibility to maintain an authentic connection to people, right? Mm -hmm. So that I'm not Framing myself, I may be a handsome fella, according to some. Most folks don't want you to represent your interests at a national table. They want to feel that their experience has been integrated and incorporated and has been, I think, thoughtfully uh, injected into the conversation at the point when it's going to have the most value.
0: Yeah. I guess I would think that for me... I always have a lot to say. I feel like my, my challenge is that I prepare for every meeting. Some of the preparation is reading the material, thinking about the material. What are my reactions? What is important in this? And But I would say that I'm making this up, the numbers. But I would say a third of my effort of preparation is to narrow down to two points that I'm going to advocate for or I'm going to ask two questions or two things yeah because my my brain is just goes a mile a minute and it's too much it's too much for me let alone my colleagues around the table so I've been in this role a year and a half and it was clear to me that my first job was building, that I I belong at this table, that I'm somebody that people can count on, that I do listen, that I do participate, that that I show up, that I, yeah, that I do the, work, I do the back room stuff, that I'm supportive. Because without that, the rest of it is like, who cares? But so, How do you, like the the thing that I'm thinking about is is you're uh, describing, I'm thinking the personal mission juxtaposed to the organizational mission. Now, I would never have sought or nor accepted a board position or the kind of contributions that I've given to Picori over the 12 years I've been involved with it if there wasn't a huge amount of synergy and if I didn't like really respect the organization and the leadership and the staff like why it's so that's a given but Is some of what you've been saying that how you try to marry those two or blend those or whatever? Yeah, I definitely think one,
1: we just don't have 48 hours in a day. We have 24 hours. That's all we get. And if we're lucky, maybe we get eight hours of sleep as part of it. And unfortunately, I think here, particularly in the United States, patient advocates who are sitting at these national tables, like they don't grow on trees is the perception. There's a lot of spaces and places people want us to do work. And there's a lot of spaces and places that we want to do work. And so I try to find the places that I think are going to be the most meaningful And as a person with HIV, again, keep mentioning that it's such a strong influence from our community. We learned a long time ago that engagement with our government and how society was structured was really going to be the path that we needed to understand how our medications were approved by the FDA. We needed to understand how the healthcare delivery system was designed to integrate our feedback into the quality of the program. When I come out of the Ryan White program as a patient, I think that's how all of help that like everybody got these sort of comprehensive.
0: Sorry, say a little bit about the Ryan White Program.
1: Oh, yeah. The Ryan White Program is a, a federal program. It's funded through the president's uh, discretionary budget, funds a comprehensive system of care for persons with HIV in the United States. And it is mandated uh, legislatively to have a clinical quality management program. And that program has to identify indicators, and conduct an annual quality improvement project.
0: Thank you.
1: For me, going through the Ryan White system, I saw like what we could do if a community understood sort of pathway to agency. And it was like, here was this group of people saying we're into quality and we need patients and caregivers and family and all of the community to help us do this. And I, I was like, this is great. And so once I got deeply involved in that, then I started becoming aware that this little community of quality we had was part of a national community and an international community. And so suddenly... What I thought was previously just assumptions of like how things work. It's like the curtain got pulled back, and suddenly you see, whoa, look at what's happening. Look at the thought, the attention, the detail. I had no idea that the smartest people in the country sit around and think about us. Like that was inspiring. And it was even cooler to know and think that they wanted us to be a part of it. But I think then when I learn about places like National Quality Forum, the people who are helping to shape and frame this conversation and to shine their particular light as part of their role, a place like that inspires measurement. I learned a long time ago in our Ryan White program that what we measure gets improved, that we can inform measurement, that we can be a part of developing it, implementing it, evaluating it. And so As a person, I'm white, I'm cisgendered, I'm a male, I've got like all the privileges. And, you know, I see it, I've been given access to it. I don't doubt that a lot of that access is a result of the fact that I look, act and sound a lot like the people who already have that access. And so I look for organizations where not only is that access present, but when you look in the organization, that access is part of their culture. And when I first engaged, I'll speak about National Quality Forum, that's the the sort of board that I'm on. I was on a committee and I was actively asked what I thought. I ended up making a comment that changed a measure. Oops, it turned out the patient knew more about scientific reliability than the committee did. And so it was just, it was a really great experience where I was both, the experience was sought, I was allowed to share, and I saw an immediate impact. And I said, I am one person, these are dozens of tables. There are so many spaces and places. My community needs to know about this. And that's when I think I really started understanding that the synergy I think you're describing really is about not just an individual, like I'm responsible to the people that I sit at that table for. And so the synergy that exists has to not just be, I think, synergy for me, but synergy for the people that I'm supposed to be sitting at that table to represent. And if I'm not doing that or the organization isn't open to that or doesn't reflect in their culture that that this is even like a possible space that we're working in, then I just don't know as a patient, a person with HIV, a former drug user, a former sex worker, like I, I just don't know if I have that fight in me to try to turn an organization yes. that isn't thinking that way. I go to the spaces and places where I think people inspire me and- right. Every time I talk to our national quality leaders, you know, whether those be from NQF, IHI, and even in our measure development community, like these are smart people, but not only are they smart, they're compassionate, they're passionate about what they do. And I think they're just a little bit wonky. They just don't know how to ask for friends. And so part of what I try to do is just broker that friendship and say, you want to talk to people, I talk to people. So let's make this happen. And when that can occur when I can create access in such a way that it's not just generating a better service or greater access in a health system, but access to the design of that system and the thinking about the purpose and structure of it. To me, that's what sort of deconstructing sort of power Mm -hmm. and privilege is all about, expanding access to it. And I think as a patient on a national board, that's part of what we've got to do is open those doors for other people.
0: That's really eloquent. I'm trying to think of how to frame this question. So, I I resonate with the, if I'm going to put all this effort out, it needs to also feed me. Meaning that, like, I just got, I just... I couldn't make a meeting, and I just listened to the the recording of the, the meeting that I couldn't make. And, oh, my goodness, I was so inspired. I, I, I wish I was there. I wish I was able to put my two cents worth in because I can't help myself. But but I, it was really inspiring, and it was okay that I wasn't there. The issues were solid. As you said, the compassion, the drive to go from theory to action, the, it was all there. So one of the things that I, I did when I got appointed to this board was I, I engaged a coach because I feel like this is a career capper for me. I mean, I'm old and the, th- this is, I'm, I'm quote unquote retired and I put a lot of time into this and I'm never going to, this is as big as I'm going to get. I want to do a good job and i want to take care of myself in the process. I don't want to burn myself out. I want to contribute. It was through having a coach where that i realized that the first thing to do was build trust, that limit myself to two points. It's hard to see your own wake. I know i'm a force. I'm a charismatic eloquent, driven person. And so just anything, you can't be in healthcare and not think about unintended consequences. And so I feel like that's a danger of being me, is my own, the unintended consequences that I have. And I want to be effective in this role. So hence, having a coach, which has really helped me. Yeah. What kind of support do you get either from the the organization from nqf or from your community, like how do you deal with? But oh, this is a different stage.
1: yeah, yeah. it's there is in our community, we have this growing I'm not going to say it's a problem. It's like a challenge. and it has to do with so many of us now who have become part of systems who through efforts to make systems more representative, more culturally responsive, we're finding our way into these organizations. And that kind of engagement, and I find working with systems, being a part of like public serving boards, things like that, you're very similar in a lot of these different environments. And it changes a little bit, things that you didn't see before, sometimes for the better, sometimes not. Sometimes people are less guarded when you're in those environments. And so the words that come out could sting a little more. That's part of the wisdom is to be like, my moment is we can help in this space and not, well, I don't want to get into like the whole cancel culture thing, but there are compassionate things we can do to bring others into a better state of awareness. But all of these things, right? When I was a, A kid joining some of these tables, especially the first kind of national tables, I joined. I was terrified. I didn't know what was supposed to happen there. Someone uses a word that I don't know. Does that mean I don't join the conversation? Does that mean I just do I Google it quickly and try to learn enough about it so that I say something smart? It was like there's all these questions about how do I, like you're saying, build trust? How do I demonstrate to the committee or the table that I deserve to be there? That I'm going to be valuable? And I think. A lot of those questions, I I look to the elders in my community, the people who had sat at these tables before me. In particular, there was one woman, Dolores Dash. She passed away right at the very beginning of the COVID epidemic. She was a black woman who started as an undocumented immigrant, came to the U.S., got like her masters, ended up. She just she was a force, and her nickname was the Quiet Storm. And she was like this little old Jamaican lady who would just sit in her meetings and be very quiet and just say nothing. And then when it got to her, the things that she said would just like, I won't say explode a room, it lit up a room, right? Mm -hmm. It's like she had quietly observed and listened and figured out what she was going to say that was going to turn the room to the benefit of her constituents. She was just so good at it. And I remember asking her, before I sat at this first, it was a federal policy meeting for HIV, and she was unable to go. She said, hey, Adam, I'm going to send you. And I was like, talk to me about this environment. And she said, it's a policy table. You will not get many opportunities to speak. You will likely be able to say one or two things, so you better make it count. And I was like, okay, so now all of a sudden, like, here's this, like, responsibility and the pressure and all of this. And when I got in the meeting, I spoke more than twice. I had a lot to say, but it was definitely like I was disruptive and people were like, oh, and I think that coin on that edge, Mm -hmm. it could have flipped right to we hate this kid. Don't ever let him come back here. Thankfully, it flipped on the other side, which was, wow, he has a lot of passion. We should listen more. But that room doesn't always go that way. And I learned very quickly that before I walk into a room, I first talked to the people in my community to find out have you ever walked in this room? Do we know that this is a place and a space for us? Have we been respected here? Have we been disrespected here? And if if my community looks back and is we never heard of it, then you start asking around, right, try to understand, right, right, right. but I think I learned because people were willing to teach and I was willing to ask. And I think there's a humility yes. in that leadership point to say, yeah, I'm sitting on this national board and I will still To this day, right? When I get the measures and I got to review them and read them, I go talk to people who are specialists in that field. I want to understand their perspective. I go to the people in my community, particularly Black women, Indigenous Mm -hmm. folks, like all the people whose narratives are going to give me a different facet on this. And then I come in. So it's like, I think the wisdom that I get is when I hear something from the community that is so loud then I have to make that decision there about do I put this here as loud as is, as, I'm hearing it. Right. And that I think I go and I ask people in the right. community and say, should we be shouting this or is this something that we put on the table and let it go? Or do I need to ring the bell? And I've had, and I'm not going to lie. I've rang bells at a okay, national level before when the community says ring it. But I would never do that. I don't think I would ever do it on my own. I really think that ringing a bell by yourself without the wisdom of people around you, it it can just be like you're saying, there's unintended consequences of ringing a bell for a community that maybe isn't ready to have that
0: out. That's so interesting. A couple of things. One is that I'm really um, impressed with the internal, So in PCORI, so other board members, the executive directors, some of the senior staff, I feel like since I've been part of PCORI for more than 10 years, I I have a network within PCORI and part of my educating myself includes them. And, which is, and then there are these advisory panels. And so I've been involved with advisory panels, and I try to attend as many as I can just to keep my ear to the ground. Oh, and a couple other things. One is I find that for me, just to since I built trust, I feel like instead of shouting, I can say the community is shouting. And just yeah. say the community is shouting. And that's enough. And, of course, that that I see that things that I bring up are incorporated into the organizational work makes me feel comfortable that I don't need to shout for real. I can just say, this is really important, and that's enough.
1: And I think that is, to go back to the very beginning of our conversation, I think that's the distinction between activism and advocacy, right? If I have to shout, folks aren't with me yet because I should be able to just say the people in my community are suffering and here is why. In the context of measurement, let's say it doesn't account for people with this condition or it doesn't think about persons with this experience and- When you say that in a room, I think, especially at a national level and especially in healthcare, and maybe I've got privileged rosy glasses on, but I think most people that I've engaged with, at least, you know, I never know what's in their head, but I think they hear that and yeah. they go, wow, okay. So we should do something about that. Right. And it's taken and accepted with the same credibility and authority as if the clinician had said, this is clinically unsafe. And that, like that trust you're talking about there, I think it is built and it's something to put the mentoring in the other direction. I've got people uh, who I keep trying to bring into the world and go, okay, come over here. I, I need you in this space. They need to hear what you have to say. But the critical, I would almost call it a critical conversation is about how this is categorically different than likely anything that you've done before, including board service at a community-based organization. The stakes are higher. The conversation is more technical. It's more specific. And your impact is huge. And so you have to understand, I think, all of those components, because as you said earlier, we can't see our own wake. And sometimes you can throw a boulder in a pothole puddle and you just obliterate the entire environment when really you could have just looked down and been like, Hey folks, let's look here. Not kind of fire rockets at the situation. And I think that is maturity somewhat in how communities can engage as power and privilege get expanded. Some folks will look back and say, I scream because they've never listened. And I think that's when a system, if we're trauma informed, right? If we are truly adopting those principles, Then when we reach out, sometimes I think our boards and our systems need to learn how to hear the screaming a little bit at first Mm -hmm. and understand that's been because we're conditioned to do that as patients in healthcare. So all that context is what I try, I think, from my experience to share with the people before I put them in a room.
0: Now a word about our sponsor, Abridge. Use Abridge to record your doctor visit. Push the big pink button and record the conversation. Read the transcript or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at Abridge.com, abridg or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store record your healthcare conversations let me know how it went our guest today is adam thompson he's on the national board of the national quality forum recall co-chairs the infectious disease measurement endorsement committee Chewing on this a distinction between activists and advocate, I feel like at Picori, I am not like there's. I have almost zero work. Everybody's drunk the Kool Aid. It's oh my goodness. Now like how it's like understanding what are the levers of power? We've so far we've been talking about sort of the levers of power that we have as individuals sitting on a board but then there's the what are the levers of power that Picori has that NQF has and how can we either recognize what those levers of power are and in a way having been an advocate and an activist maybe i'm oriented To what can I do? What's in the realm of possibility? And I think that's, uh, it's like if you're president of the United States, supposedly the most powerful person in the world, really your power is limited. And when you sit in a role, in a seat, you realize more the constraints that you're operating in. So I think when you're talking about mentorship of other people, that Sometimes I find it challenging because I hear from people maybe a couple times a month. Somebody will email me or call me, and what about this? And what about that? And why doesn't PCORI this or whatever? And I find myself trying to describe the environment and these levers of power. And I feel like this is a this is a learning. Now I'm learning this. How do I communicate in that direction? Like in a way, it's the hardest. Like I can talk to clinicians, I can talk to researchers, I can talk to measure developers. These are people. Um, I find my own constituency is sometimes the hardest so my own constituency sometimes is the hardest for me because in my mind i'm thinking oh my god they just don't understand the like how the sausage is made and i don't want there's the i have to think about how much do i want to share about that sausage is made because i'm in a position where there's we're having these conversations we're trying to figure stuff out we're public this is most of our work is public still it's hard. it's sometimes I find it hard to suggest to people how they can. Here's a button you could push. Right. Here's an approach that might work. On the other hand, I don't want to squash people's enthusiasm because people listened to me when I was raw and they they helped me mature. And become more effective as an advocate, as a participant. It's yeah. So, what's been your experience with that? Yeah, so, I I really I
1: love the phrase the making of a sausage. It's been all over the news. Everybody mm-hmm. talking about it. And I think so my first reactions are one: it's people need to know that there is sausage. That oh, that okay, is right even right. that that there is even a thing out in the world that people are doing this, right? And like in the context ah. of like quality measurement, I didn't even didn't know that a 24 year old drug user going to leapfrog to find out like, where's the highest quality care for my habits. That's just not that context. So it's like, people got to be aware that there is sausage. And then they got to be aware that people make it, right, that there's a process by which this happens. And then they've got to be aware that those processes are very technical. And not only are they technical, but they're aimed at a very strange thing uh, for our country right now, which is consensus. And I think for me, how the sausage is made is about teaching people a little bit more about what the expectations can be in that room. And I think as a person with HIV, we were always taught from the moment I became an advocate, you are in charge, nothing about us without us. Like you are number one. And when you sit in a room like that, that, that mindset is, is, just not true. First of all, right. there are other patients in the room who have you know just as much authority now to change that system as I do, but it's, it's different. And so one of the things that I've learned about it is if people don't know what it is you're making or what you're doing, they go at what they know. And so when I first got involved in boards and, and moved from organization to board, I became really clear about the distinction between mission, vision, and values. And process and procedure. I'm a sausage maker. I want process and procedure. Like I write work plans. I write government grants. It's like all of those things are how I think the sausage is made. Because as a staff member in an organization, I may or may not have ever participated in a strategic planning process. I may not know why those values become so important because all I'm receiving are the processes that have flowed from that mission, those vision, and those values. And so I think what happens, at least for me, is the sausage that I try to explain to people is what it is we're really making here and why the integration of a value of something like equity has a thousand tributaries of possibility that come from that because now we have to apply that value and we can look at every decision and say, Is this in our values? And so to me, exposing levers are things like that. I, before joining boards, I don't think I understood the sort of why policy is written the way it is, why we want it to be broad, yet specific enough that it serves its All the things that you learn there. But I think communities, what they see and what they experience is bad. Somebody doesn't call me back. There's no appointment available. I show up and the provider stigmatized or discriminated against me. So we're immediately drawn out of value and into the mechanics of it because that's our experience. And so for me, you've got to refocus people around that and then align them to this idea that you are going to have people in that room that disagree with you and they will like you as a human being. Right. And that. Communities, at least I'll speak for community of people with HIV, we've been pitted against each other, right? Like throughout history, we've seen white and black people, gay and trans folks, right? Like all these different ways society has the marginalized fight. And so when you come to that table, you've got a fighting spirit already. And and unfortunately, sometimes you think you've got to fight even the people in your own community. You get to a table where those people aren't even in your community, now I want you to know what happened to me because I know you're important. But if I don't know why you're important or what your levers of power are, then all I'm doing is likely telling a doctor a story they already know and a story that probably already horrified them because they heard it happen from another colleague and they may have even had the positional authority to have gotten rid of people that do that stuff. They know that, but we don't know that they know. And so that to me is, again, what do you got to do? Just if I were going to take a clinician into like my old street world, I would give them some background information because I don't want them to be uncomfortable in that environment. But I also don't want them to do anything that's going to be stupid in that environment and be disrespectful to everybody else. So for me, I meet people where they are, whether you're a patient, a doctor, I think we should speak in... Whatever language is appropriate for you, patient, doctor, I don't care. I can learn your nuances in your language if that means we've got this bridge. But that, to me, that's the sausage. And so it if we don't, sausage. yeah, if we and, don't expose the, it.
0: I, I like what you're saying about the values, because it's saying that we're going to use organic stuff in our sausage. That's what a board does. A board says we have values. What should we have talked about that we haven't?
1: No, I, I think it would be that what the only thing I would add is I think I carry so much information back when I sit on these boards and the access that I get to how decisions are made, why they're they're made the way they are, the processes that produce them. So much of my job is, is to turn around and help everybody else understand that I think what that tells me is there's a critical lack of transparency. Yeah. Or something is missing in the communication and dissemination of it that the majority of people in this country are not aware of the, I think, amazing efforts that people undertake every day to try to make this system better and to try and do this. I could go out and tell everybody I know, but I'm one person in this country. I know a lot of people, but I don't know everybody. And so something is missing in the mechanics of what we do because patients don't understand it on the regular people in communities don't know how to get involved. And that to me, a lack of transparency. I mean, I think it was like what, 2007, there was like this great article. Don Barwick was like, Oh, transparency. It's critical. What did I think the line was the most important attribute of a culture of safety? So I think what we have to think about is are our processes of consensus transparent. I think they are transparent. I just don't know if they're made accessible. Maybe that's what
0: I want to say. Yeah. We have
1: transparency, but it's oh. not accessible to everyone.
0: I hear you. I would add to that. For me, and really, this is not just me, but the. I think what Picori has done amazing is that the science and the process of, of of lay people engagement. Patients and caregivers being engaged, partnering, inclusion. They're stellar. They're a guiding light. They're leading the pack. What we still haven't done well is that the learning from research gets implemented. And our focus has been on the health systems and clinicians implementing and i think we're just opening our eyes to people are the ones who really implement this stuff because it's about their lives and how do you do that if if we think that health systems and clinicians are diverse it's like so homogeneous when you compare it to all the people who have high blood pressure or whatever, or have disabilities. So, you know, it's a little bit about dissemination, but it's more about dissemination that leads to action.
1: Yeah. And just to make sure, because I I hate it when I make statements that like shade all of healthcare. So I want to make it a macro level, which is, I think there's a problem with the way in which the American government seeks feedback from the communities. And the concept of public comment, all of these ways, these mechanisms that we have, they're passive mechanisms, right? Like they require that people know that they're there, take action to access them, make the feedback and trust that feedback is incorporated, right? There's a lot of steps there. Yeah. And right now, uh, the people I know are busy. They've got kids that, that weren't in school that now are having to catch up. They lost family members. They switched jobs. It's like, the last thing people need is to have a process of feedback that has like so many hurdles to it. And I don't think that it's saying you got to mail every single American a survey, but I've got a whole community of people who are willing to talk and I'm just not sure where I put them.
0: Well, uh, oh, That's a great note to end on. This is great. I'm glad we met. I have a feeling there's more here. And I think we have colleagues who are on national boards, different national boards in the healthcare world. And I think it would be, it might be good to find them. And periodically think about how we do this work and support each other in doing this work. And here where some of the synergies are. Obviously, for me, I'm involved with NQF. I just became a member now that I can afford it. Now I can be a member for $100. It used to be yeah. 1000 And yeah, so I'm glad you are where you are. We need you. Thank you. We will Thank talk you. again.
1: For sure. And I agree with you. I think bringing communities of people trying to achieve similar goals is at least as I was raised the American way. So.
0: All right. Take care, man. Awesome. Have a great day. Okay. Bye. My father, uncle, and cousin have been in the casings business. Sausages are stuffed into casings. I've known more about how real sausage is made since a very young age than I ever wanted. I can still smell the Chicago stockyards. When I was 16, I was worried about the draft. Drafted into the army to go to Vietnam. I needed to learn how the sausage was made. I became a draft counselor at a downtown church. Yep, I was 16. I carried this learning how the sausage is made throughout my career. Dr. W. Edwards Deming called it profound knowledge. I prefer knowing how the sausage is made. Serving as a patient caregiver stakeholder on a national board entails a great responsibility and opportunity. I feel a pulsating tension between self-confidence, vision, An enthusiasm on the one hand, an imposter syndrome, and wanting to be liked and belong on the other. I feel a responsibility to the organization and the communities that have trusted me. It works when they're all in alignment. That alignment happens often enough to sustain me. If you're on a national healthcare-related board as a patient-caregiver-stakeholder, let me know. Maybe we could ride this train together. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website www.health-hats.com Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. Thanks. See you around the block.